This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Outside Edge. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outside Edge and I'm your host Chandresh Narayanan. We got two interesting guests today on our podcast. One Mr. Faisal Hasnain, he's the former chief financial officer of the International Cricket Council and managing director, ex-managing director of Zimbabwe Cricket and Paul Radley, senior writer from the National, a newspaper based out of Abu Dhabi. And today we are here to talk about two interesting topics, a few interesting topics with these two interesting gentlemen uh, centered around the Cricket World Cup. Welcome to the show gentlemen. Thank you Chandresh. Thanks for having us Chandresh. There's been a lot of talk about the scheduling of the tournament and uh, whether the England and Wales cricket board did not see the radar before agreeing on a schedule for the World Cup. Both of you are British gentlemen. What do you have to say about the British weather? Has it been fickle or has the ECB not read the radar or the ICC not read the radar properly? Well, I suppose planning a tournament in England, you're sort of beholden to the whims of the weather. If you look last summer, there was a heat wave that any coming back from here in Dubai back to the UK, I found it hot, really difficult to cope with actually. That was last, just last summer. If, if that weather had been going on, you know, at this at this stage now, there would be no complaints about this. But it is Britain. It's British summertime, so it just needed a bit more luck. But they've they've missed. It. I think it's made quite a dent in the tournament and the atmosphere around the tournament for quite important matches. So yeah, it's not been great from that perspective. Look, the weather in England is always a factor when you're having any event. I mean, whether it's cricket, whether it's Wimbledon. So no one can really blame the ICC or the ECB if it rains. It does rain in England. The fact is that you're playing a World Cup and you've got to plan for rain and what happens after the rains. So, for example, you know that in May and June, it's not only raining, it's also very cold. I mean, I've seen temperatures, them playing in 11 degrees, 12 degrees. So is it really the right time to have a World Cup in May and June where the temperatures are low and the chances of rain are high as opposed to having it maybe in July and August? But then in July and August, in August, what you're talking about are the ashes. So, you know, do the have the ashes taken precedence over the World Cup in order to allow, a, you know, a relatively rain-free ashes as opposed to the World Cup? I'm sure the ECB and the ICC must have sat down and thought about this. But I certainly hope that it wasn't the ashes that uh, made the World Cup scheduled earlier. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, look, if it rains, it rains. The, the fact is what happens after those rains and, and that really means what kind of planning has taken place reserve days, now there's been a lot of talk about reserve days for the fi- semi-finals and the finals only So in that sense, having been part of the ICC yourself uh, and probably been part of discussions around this World Cup some time back, is the criticism of, this, of the ICC justified? Look, it all boils down to a matter of logistics and cost. I know that the ICC took out a statement uh, about 10 days ago regarding the fact that logistically to have reserve days is a problem. But look, it's a World Cup. It's a World Cup and you've got to give teams every opportunity to play cricket and get the right result on the field of play. You've got to give your spectators who've you know, paid a lot of money, time, effort to watch those matches. So I think if it's a matter of cost, and I think at the end of the day, it does boil down to cost. I think the ICC should really go the extra mile and uh, and, and have those reserve days in place. So, Fezzel, can I ask, can you explain how having a reserve day costs so much more? How, how does that work? 
Well, let's put it this way. You know, you are now planning for matches to happen on the second day as well. So effectively, your, your, your cameras are now booked to stay there for two days. Your commentary team is there for two days. Uh, you're stewarding. Effectively, you have to plan for that to happen, which means that nothing else can happen at that ground on day two, which means that probably paying the stadium. Instead of paying them one day's rent, you've got to pay them two days' rent. You've got to have people on standby. So that's where I think that the contingency cost element is always there. And there are people who, for example, reserve themselves for the second day. So the cost of paying all those people will happen. But at the end of the day, look, if you're spending uh, $150 million on an event, you know, $155 million is not, I think, a big deal in the bigger context of things in order to allow the cricket to take precedence, which I think should be the case. Paul, you've been in England uh, covering this tournament. What's been the general response from the fans in England to this particular tournament? Well, I'd say it's lukewarm, certainly to start with. You, you definitely, people who like cricket, which isn't everybody in the UK, not like India and Pakistan, in the UK, not everybody likes cricket, not everybody knows about cricket. The, the sport isn't on free-to-air television there, which is a massive thing. You don't pick up the casual, casual sports fans who see that there's a contest on in a sport, so they, they pick it up and they follow it. But having been in England... Apart from the very close vicinity of, the, of each stadium, you certainly wouldn't know that a major tournament is on. If it, if it was a football World Cup, they'd be bunting everywhere. You just wouldn't be able to move for it. And I think that in terms of the general public sort of uh, feeling towards the tournament, that's had a massive effect. Is that a cause for concern for ICC? Look, um, at the end of the day, I think it should be a cause for concern. I remember going back maybe about 10 years one of the strategies or one of the objectives for the ICC holding an event such as a World Cup or a World T20 or a Champions Trophy for that matter, one of the ICC's major events, one of the objectives certainly was that it should transcend the atmosphere in that country. And what Paul has said is absolutely right. You know, that has to be one of the objectives of the ICC and it has to be a cause of concern that uh, the tournament isn't as, hasn't really taken over that euphoria as much as it should. I mean, I, I, you know, when Wimbledon is on in England, everyone is focused towards Wimbledon. I mean, it's the talk of the, the talk of the country, you know. But uh, for some reason, this World Cup uh, has been uh, a little more, I guess, uh, laid back, if I can use that word, yeah. One gentleman you worked very closely with in your time at the ICC was uh, Mr. Sunil Gavaskar when he was the chairman of the cricket committee. And he eventually had to leave the job or the role that he was doing because of him doing dual role as columnist and commentator and as chairman of the cricket committee. He's been very, very critical of uh, the England-Wales cricket board and especially its handling of the, the cranes and the covers and he's been making specific comments about the fact that they get about $750,000. I don't know how he got the figure, but uh, he's been making specific comments about the England-Wales cricket board and uh, very, very critical. You've dealt with Mr. Gavaskar in your capacity as CFO of ICC. What do you make of all the rants that we've heard from Mr. Gavaskar in his columns and in his commentary? Look, uh, uh, Mr. Sunil Gavaskar is, uh, is, is a highly experienced, highly respected, very knowledgeable uh, gentleman who's been part of the cricket, uh, uh, cricket uh, setup for many, many years. Apart from being one of the finest uh, batsmen that uh, India have, have, have produced, and he'd probably be, you know, certainly, uh, um, you know, in contention for 
being one of my openers in an all-time uh, Test 11. Having said that, look, I think uh, some of the criticism that uh, Sunil has levied, I think there is probably some justification because Again, he's looking purely at the cricket. The, the host country gets uh, uh, $750,000 per match, and I think that's going to be increased for the next World Cup to a million dollars per match. Now, to be honest, what that $750,000 is meant to do is to allow the host country to actually use that money to enhance whatever the ICC is doing. So, for example, to give you an example, if the ICC, and there's a very, very uh, strict formula about what the ICC will pay for and what the host will pay for. So I'll give you one example, and that is that the ICC say that, look, we won't pay more than a very small amount for an opening ceremony. Now, it's now up to the host to take that host fee that it gets and enhance that opening ceremony if it wishes to using that host fee. Uh, and that applies, for example, to the covers on the ground. Unfortunately, what tends to happen from time to time is that the host country actually considers that host fee as profit, that we shouldn't touch that. The ICC should pay for whatever it pays for. That $750,000 actually goes right into our pocket as profit, and uh, that's how we'll run the event. Now, I'm not saying that has happened in this case. I do know that countries do spend their host fee a lot, and uh, for the last Cricket World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, I know Australia spent a lot of money over and above what the ICC spends. But uh, I think, uh, uh, yes, if you look at uh, you know, Gavaskar's uh, comments about uh, the covers, I think uh, that's right. I mean, for a major event, again, the pinnacle event of the ICC, the pinnacle event, I think, for the ECB as well, you know, there should have been arrangements made for the grounds to be fully covered. You know, no one's blaming you if it rains. What he's talking about is what happens after the rains. You know, that recovery period has to be quick. And yes, they do get a lot of money per match, and it's meant to be spent on stuff like this, which the ICC does not pay for. Paul, how does the media in UK look at uh, Gavaskar's comments? He's been very critical of the ECB over the years, whether it was TCCB, the Test and County Cricket Board. In the past, we know what happened with him at the Lords in 1990 when he was not allowed to enter the stadium and he raised a stink about it. How does the how does the British media look at Mr. Gavaskar? Yeah, I wouldn't say, honestly, I wouldn't say that it's it's really scratched the surface too much, son of Gavaskar. I know there's often a, a bit of back and forth between the English media and the Indian media, certainly Sanjay Mandraka has, has raised hackles a few times with some of the stuff he said about English players, in particular Ben Stokes. Gavaskar, I honestly haven't noticed it too much, but if just picking up on the, the earlier question you asked of Hazel, if Sana Gavaskar's making strident comments um, and he's forthright in his views in his role as a commentator, I think that needs to be applauded. If, if that's what he's, if, if that's what he thinks, and it's not coming from a position of bias, and it doesn't sound like it is, it sounds like they're fair criticisms. He needs to be applauded, especially as somebody who has, in the past, held positions as a commentator and an administrative position at the same time. That's a conflict of interest. You can't expect him to. Like, if you if you take the case of Michael Holding in in this World Cup, has been censured. As a, as a commentator, he's been censured for some of the stuff he's said because he's been critical of the match officials. That's ridiculous. I don't, I don't think Sonogavaskar should be, should be criticised for having stringent and forthright views on anything. If, if he's a commentator, good on him. I might uh, also add to that that uh, one of the criteria, I think, for the ICC to have the major events in either India, uh, England and Australia was revenue maximisation. Now, 
if the objective is revenue maximization, which uh, certainly was the criteria at that time, then one of the objectives have also got to be that you've got to spend money where it's required in order to make sure that the event takes place to the highest possible standards, you know, which means spending money uh, on, uh, on, uh, on, on the necessary infrastructure to cope with things such as rain. And uh, Paul raises a very good point about the Michael Holding criticism and the censure by the ICC about the fact that he criticized the umpires while doing commentary. Having been part of the ICC yourself, and uh, we've seen that happening with BCCI, pulling up the commentators when they don't toe the party line, as it were. Were you surprised that such a thing happened? Look, uh, one of the things that uh, I think any any governing body whether it's the ICC, FIFA, or, uh, or, or, or someone else. Look, they, 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 they obviously don't want their officials uh, to come under criticism because what they are trying to say is that, look, mistakes will happen at the end of the day. And therefore, uh, uh, they don't want uh, there to be this negative uh, perception uh, sort of hanging over this tournament that this particular umpire or that particular umpire is uh, is either not good enough or, or so on. So I think uh, there has to be a balance. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if 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 a commentator feels that look, uh, the umpiring standards in a particular match have not been of a world class standard, then I think he should be allowed to express that. And uh, obviously, the ICC should uh, should respond to that uh, in 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 a proper manner. And I think that's how the uh, otherwise, you know, you're giving a free hand to the umpires that look, there's no accountability, you know, except in private. And I do know that after every single match, the ICC reviews. Uh, the performance of the umpires, the captain's report on the umpires, the ICC's uh, uh, umpires manager reviews each and every decision an umpire makes and his general conduct after each match. That does happen. But uh, I think at the same time, you know, people such as Michael Holding, I, I think they also have a duty to uh, express their views as they honestly feel. And I think uh, subsequently there was uh, uh, a discussion between, uh, you know, uh, Michael Holding and, uh, you know, the, the, the TV production company uh, who's in charge uh, of the uh, production of the match to come to some kind of, uh, uh, you know, an understanding. Continuing with Mr. Gavaskar, before the tournament started, there was a, there was, there was a cricket summit on an Indian television channel and uh, Gavaskar's also been talking about it in his columns. He was asked who's going to make the final. He said India and the rest of the world. And uh, somebody prodded him and asked him what does, what does he mean by rest of the world and he said the English team. And his contention was that the English team is made up of players from different countries and uh, he felt that the ICC and the England and Wales cricket board have bent rules to let a few players come in, especially one Mr. Jofra Archer, who's been the most talked about player in this tournament. Uh, Paul, what do you make of this uh, this taunt by Gavaskar in his media talk? Well, yeah, coming from the UK, I take issue a little bit with that because it's a multicultural, a multicultural country uh, and it should be applauded for being so, in my opinion. Um, and also, the ICC have got rules in place. It's not like they haven't bent the rules. In, in actual fact, the Jofra Archer case, the ECB had set up their own, their own rules for having players show basically a long-term commitment. I think they, got, they saw the ability of Archer and tweaked that slightly, but that's the ECB's 
own take on it. It's not the ICC. The, England are playing totally by the same rules as everybody else. So Gavaskar's entitled to his views, but I'd, I'd be against... I'd take the opposite view, personally. Again, my view is that it's a really wonderful thing for England to be able to feel the team that's made up of so many diverse cultures. I don't think any rules have been broken. I think shows you that uh, England is a place where uh, people uh, get to the uh, uh, top on merit through their efforts, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to see, actually. Coming to the final part of this podcast, uh, where do you think this game is headed? Because uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the 10-team event. Paul, you work for uh, work in a region where there's a there's an associate team which felt hard done by. Uh, Mr. Asnain, you worked for Zimbabwe who felt let down by the fact that they hosted a tournament and they couldn't qualify for this World Cup. Uh, where do you think the game is headed, the men's game headed, especially in the 50-over format? As you said, live in the UAE, get... Uh, I get to see a lot of associate cricket and to my eyes and to my mind associate cricket has reached a level that is far superior to at any time in the past so to now suddenly have a World Cup that is the first one in history that hasn't got an associate team in it seems so regressive and, and a lot of people have said well the performance of Afghanistan who are the I don't think they are the lowest ranked team in the tournament but, but certainly the most recent acceptance to the to the full test you know to being a full member they obviously haven't showed up well. I think that's, you know, I have, I have an issue with the fact that if a full-member team smashes a full-member team, like West Indies did to Pakistan, that's because Pakistan had an off day or West Indies played particularly well or Pakistan cricket's just not that strong at the moment, but, you know, the wheel might turn in a while. If exactly the same thing happened involving an associate side, then that it's basically the whole of associate cricket that's damned by that and associates shouldn't be accepted into major competitions but if you think some of the most salient memories you've had of world cups in the recent past things that ireland have done knocking out knocking out pakistan beating england kevin o'brien still world record holder for the fastest world cup century played by an associate cricketer so there's so much colour that can be brought by players that you don't see every day on the on the churn of the global game. But I really feel like cricket is regressing. If you if you if you only think ten teams are worthy of playing in your World Cup, having had more than that in the past, can't be a good sign. Look, I agree. I have always been a very very strong supporter of spreading the game. That's one of the uh, objectives of the ICC. And to exclude the associate countries from your uh, pinnacle event, I think, uh, is, is, is not the right way forward. So do you think that going into the Olympics would be the ultimate icing on the cake? Uh, because we just heard that the women's sport, women's cricket, has had entered the uh, Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in 2022. And you've been part of discussions on Olympics. And there's, it's very tricky because you've got England and Wales. And then you could have UK or Britain in the Great Britain in the Olympics. India doesn't want to come under the Olympic Charter in India. There's a lot of politics involved over there. You know, uh, Chandresh, again, uh, look, having cricket in the Olympics has been on the agenda for the ICC for a very long time. And um, uh, I think that uh, the ICC, uh, certainly the management and certain boards making up the ICC want cricket to be part of the Olympics. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. The problem is, and what has actually happened, is that, uh, again, this is where the finances uh, come into play. I think uh, it is felt that uh, participating in the Olympics will encroach upon the English cricket season. 
because that's normally in, in, in August. So it will cut out a month or six weeks. If you'll take preparation time as well uh, out of the English cricket season, which is very popular, and I think I've, I've heard things such as, look, it'll cost the, the, the English cricket board $100 million. If it's, uh, if it's an Ashes that's impacted, that's one. Secondly, what has also been felt by certain boards, and I think uh, India, Felt, uh, felt that uh, being part of the Olympics would actually undermine the ICC's Cricket World Cup because then what is the pinnacle? Is an Olympic gold medal what you're striving for, which in the, in the rest of the sports is the ultimate, or is it your uh, Cricket World Cup? which is the pinnacle. So I think those are the reasons why cricket has actually been held back from the Olympics. There is a deal to be done. The ICC can go to the Olympics and say, we will have cricket as part of the Olympics. We will make sure India participates along with uh, the best players. But what you've got to do is you've got to give us 50% or whatever of the incremental revenues that you generate. That then takes care of, of the losses that England might suffer, and that actually gives people more money. And the Olympics, I think, should be ready to do some kind of a deal. One thing I would pick out of that was the, the idea of it not necessarily being the pinnacle. Uh, I don't think it could be the pinnacle, and that would be a problem for... For the Olympics, I'd have thought. The, the Olympic Committee wouldn't want to grant a sport access to their tournament where it isn't the, the, you know, the major gong that any player in that sport wants to win. Thanks a lot, gentlemen, for joining us on this episode. Uh, it was really informative. Thanks a lot once again, Mr. Asnain. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for joining us on this week's episode of Outside Edge. Please do join us next week for more news and information from the Cricket World Cup in United Kingdom. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.